The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about influence, but not just any kind of influence, influence without authority. Now, when I talk to clients, that may be the hottest topic going, and I think it's largely because we're asking people to have greater and greater impact across team, across function, across business unit, across geography. We're doing tons of project-oriented work where the leader is accountable, but they don't have the formal authority to tell everybody what to do or to make sure that all the resources are in place. Or worse, if you do happen to have the formal authority and you try to use it, it doesn't tend to go very well. So what I want to do is talk about the secret to influencing without using or even when you don't have formal authority. And our guest today is Alan Cohen. Now, Alan's a distinguished professor of the global leadership at Babson College, and he has the lovely privilege of being in residence at the San Francisco campus. Wouldn't we all like to do that? Alan has authored several books, Managing for Excellence is One, Power Up Transformation, Organizations Through Shared Leadership and Influencing Without Authority, which happens to be among my favorite books to recommend. He's also written about entrepreneurship in every generation. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be talking with you, Wanda. Likewise, likewise, because I think your work on influence that authority is some of the best that exists out there. And I know a lot of people have written about it. I just happen to like your work. So you've talked about this for ages. The book is about to go into its third edition. So in mm-hmm. a nutshell, how do you describe the process of influence without authority? What are the key ingredients? Well, I'm going to give you uh, two answers. The first one is uh, my uh, sort of wise guy six-word answer to the question about uh, how do you get influence when you can't order people around, and that is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, influence is about um, uh, six simple words. Everyone expects to be paid back. That's my shorthand way of saying that influence is about exchange. It's about getting something you value in return for um, giving something that the other person values. So if you want influence, you have to figure out what the person or group you're trying to influence wants, find a way to give them some of it in return for what you're asking for. And put that way, it sounds kind of cold, 
but it isn't. In fact, it's the glue that makes organizations and life work. It turns out that underlying all influence is the um, exchange of uh, things that people care about. Sometimes it's overt. Uh, we have the influence of working. You get paid for it, literally, in uh, money. Uh, that's one kind of influence. But in, uh, in other kinds of things that happen at work, there are all kinds of other ways that people give and get. So uh, we call that currencies, by the way, because uh, once you start thinking about exchange, it leads you naturally towards the idea of currencies, which is a metaphor for things that people value. And... Um, People do it automatically, often without thinking about it. Uh, we work together. I need something. I ask you for it. Um, you give it because we have a relationship, if you can. If you can't, you say, gee, I'm sorry I can't help you. Maybe there's some other way I could. We talk back and forth. And neither of us thinks much about it, except when I find that I've given a lot and I'm not getting back. So everybody knows about uh, about exchange when you have a friend who you invite to dinner a bunch of times and you suddenly realize you've never been invited back. Or um, you've done a bunch of favors for and you ask for one and the person cuts you cold. So it's a natural process and you only need to think about it formally when it isn't working or you want to influence somebody that you don't know or you want to influence somebody who um, you ask and they turn you down and now you have to figure out how to come back uh, another time. Uh, it's always amusing when people do what they do in a foreign land. When somebody doesn't understand, they speak slower and louder, as if that's going to make the person somehow uh, understand them. So that's what got uh, my writing partner, David Bradford, and I going on this. We were watching people struggle. We started on this 25 years ago, believe it or not, and uh, it wasn't as popular a subject then. Organizations tended to be more hierarchical, uh, people gave orders more. I don't know that they were followed any better, but uh, people believed that they were. And uh, we didn't have as many project uh, teams and task forces and not as much working across boundaries, not as much distance work. And uh, as we've gone along, as you said, it's become a very hot topic. Nobody can get work done anymore without having to rely on lots of people you don't control. And so the process is about figuring out who are the other players, and uh, they can be individuals or groups or departments, and uh, what matters to them, and uh, how you can, first of all, figure that out, and then figuring out whether you've got some of it um, or you can get some of it, and how you can build a relationship so that they're willing to uh, trade, because it turns out if you have a lousy relationship or you're not trusted or they don't know you or there's bad history between you and the other person or the other department or group, they might not be willing to deal with you even when you're offering a good deal. And then um, doing give and take, making exchanges. And each of those steps can get into wonderful and interesting complications. 
So that's the basic process. It's paying attention to the other party, uh, getting to understand what matters to them. And, of course, it often uh, breaks down because when people want something badly, I really want you to cooperate with me because I know what I'm asking for is so important. And it's going to make a huge difference to me and my group. And I don't think much about <laughs> what, it, what you care about. I just insist that you do it because I want it. And uh, that's often the root of lack of influence, that I push harder and harder about what matters to me or my group, and I don't pay attention to what you need. All right, so, Alan, let me see if I can summarize this. Of, of the influence yeah, process. I love this. So let me see if I can summarize it in very short terms. So having influence is about being able to exchange something I have or can get with someone else with whom I have a reasonable relationship, so there's some degree of trust, to give that other person or party something they value. And I get something back from them. I I lost a word you dropped out for a second. To give them something that they want, right. Yeah, something they value in exchange for something that I'm looking for. So it's an exchange. We trade. Yeah, right. Like a barter system. And Mm -hmm. sometimes the trade is not explicit. It's just implicit. Um, Sometimes uh, in some organizations... The culture says you can't really talk about it very explicitly. Uh, in some organizations, you can't say, I'll give you this if you give me that. It has to be more implied. Um, in some organizations, they're very explicit about it. Uh, they talk about, uh, you owe me one. Um, I got a tin cup here. Put something in and I'll bring something back to you. I mean, it can vary all over the place. And um, it can't sound mechanical um, or uh, too hard-nosed, except in certain um, urban uh, organizations. In New York City, there might be organizations that are very hard-nosed, and they make uh, tough trades. But in other places, you have to be much more indirect and gentle, and you're doing it for the good of the organization or the good of society. Uh, because people trade in all kinds of different currencies. Um, but that's what it's about. You're, you're ultimately giving something and getting something. Okay. I love this. And this picks up on Adam Gratz for give, givers and takers uh, as well. That's okay, exactly you use right. the word currency. And currency, just to clarify for everybody, is the stuff that the other person or group values. So they're That's currency. exactly right. It's just a but metaphor. Right, just a metaphor for it. Okay, so Alan, let's take this out of what sounds um, very manipulative and give us an example of a kind of exchange that we would all recognize as appropriate and for the greater good. Okay, so um, I'm going to start by uh, talking about one of the most dramatic examples of exchange that uh, I've ever come across because uh, it, it is so dramatic and memorable. Um, I was doing research, and I came across the following uh, example, and I did an interview with Dr. Pomahatch of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Pomahatch is the man who did the first facial transplant in the United States. Now, that's one you can almost not even uh, get in your head. A facial transplant, it means taking the face off a person who's died, and putting it on a person who's alive. 
And that doesn't mean that the person who receives it looks exactly like the person who gave it, uh, because their own bone structure shapes it. But um, it had never happened in the United States. There had been uh, one or two done in France. And Dr. Pomahach um, was treating a patient who was so disfigured that he wouldn't leave his house. Okay. He was rendered yeah. um, hopeless and helpless. And uh, Pomahach was a kind man. He wanted to do something about it. He's a man who was uh, born in the Czech Republic. He got to the United States by literally offering to, offering to work for free. Um, to any, he he uh, sent letters to doctors with uh, Eastern European last names and said, I'll come and work for free for you uh, to learn. Um, so there he was. And I just will quickly tell you, all the people that he had to influence to be able to get permission to do this. He had to influence people in his own surgery department, the senior surgeons at uh, Brigham and Women's, the chief of, uh, of uh, his department, the hospital internal review board, large teams of doctors and nurses, the regional organ donor agency, Board, the board and surgeon teams to find the donors of deceased family members to get a face. He had to persuade elite surgeons to let him take the face first because you have to do that or it won't, uh, it won't uh, survive, which endangers the removal of organs they were waiting for. And then he had to raise millions for both the surgery and lifelong courses of needed immunosuppression drugs. That's all it took. Um, so that's about as complicated as anybody working in a multinational corporation trying to get cooperation for a project management team. And I'll tell some stories about those, too. So how did he go about doing it? Well, every one of those groups had their own interests. Um, they cared about their reputation. They cared about their patients. They cared about the hospital's reputation. They cared about uh, about uh, diverting money to that versus something else. And so he had to talk to each of them about the things they cared about. And interestingly, what he discovered along the way was that there was something incredibly important. He could never focus at all on anything this would do for him because he realized that if it ever sounded like he was in this for his own glory, it would kill the whole thing. That was the first thing. The second thing was he realized that almost nobody could visualize this. And, um, I mean, they were barely doing transplants of things like hands, which had been done in Europe. And so... He had some lucky breaks. He managed to get the surgeon who had done the first hand transplants, who was visiting the States, to bring along some video and interviews of the patient who'd had that done. And he showed people, and he started talking about what a difference this was making to the life of patients who wouldn't go out of their house because they were so mortified about the, their condition. And this patient that he had, who literally had no life because he wouldn't leave the house. He, he couldn't stand the way people looked at him. And he found that that was a currency that mattered to everybody who was in the medical world. 
They, they cared a lot about patients, and it transcended some of their own uh, individual concerns. And over a period of two or three years, he was very patient. He was a chess player. Over a period of two or three years, he managed to do it. Part of his strategy was to find patients who already were taking the expensive uh, immunosuppression drugs. So that expense wouldn't count against this and so on. So I don't have to tell all the details of the story. But it's a potent example of how you do the currency exchange without it being manipulative, without it being about yourself, but about doing something that people could care about for a larger cause. All right. So this is, in some ways, it's a new way of talking about a common goal, a common currency, a currency that we share together. Okay? That's right. All right. And um, when we started this, we used currency because um, our audiences um, hated the idea of being touchy-feely and having to think about other people's feelings and concerns. And we realized, since we were talking about exchanges, currencies was kind of something that didn't sound too fuzzy. Uh, and uh, then we started getting some reaction. Well, isn't that manipulative? And the answer is, it's only manipulative if you hide your goals. I mean, if you're not willing to say it to somebody, yes, I'm interested in what you care about, because I know if I do something for you, you'll help me. And if you're willing to answer directly, then it's not manipulative. It's only manipulative if you won't answer. Okay. That's an interesting argument. I love that. It's only manipulative if you're hiding your goals. Okay. So, Alan, we're going to take a break at this point. I'm with Alan Cohen. Um, Alan's book, the one that I am so fond of, is called Influence Without Authority, and it's about to go into its third edition. Alan is a distinguished professor of global leadership at Babson College and currently in the San Francisco campus. Now, if I just summarize where we are on this, Influence Without Authority is ultimately about the exchange, understanding the currency, what it is that you, the other person, values, and being able to get it and to give it to you in exchange for something that I want from you. Now, not in a manipulative Machiavellian way, but in a way that we can, that is in the open. We can all admit what we're looking for and hopefully that builds something we all care about. So we'll be right back. When I come back, I want to talk about some tactics about how do you discover what the currency is for other people. So we'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. Um, With me today is Alan Cohen, and Alan is a distinguished professor at Babson College, and the book we have been talking about, one of my favorite all-time books, is called Influence Without Authority, about to be released in its third edition. Now, Alan and his co-author have worked for 25-plus years on this notion of how do you have influence without using your formal authority or without being able to tell people what to do. And the notion, their research has uncovered, that it's about the exchange. As Alan says, it's the glue that make organizations and life work. So exchange is, I figure out what it is that I have a value that you would like, a thing we'll call a currency, and I offer that currency to you in exchange for a currency you're going to give me, which is something I would like back. So an exchange of currencies. Now, we were just talking about the fact that if you hide your goals, if it's not out in the open, then it starts to feel manipulative. Is there anything else, Alan, that contributes to this sense of manipulation? Yeah. Um, In general, what I tell anybody I work with, nobody likes to be techniqued. (laughs) <laughs> that is, I mean, in, in, in our field, we teach all kinds of ways to do uh, interpersonal things, to work with groups and so on. And there are a lot of tools and skills that we teach, but nobody likes to be on the receiving end of what feels like a technique is being used on them. And the minute somebody suspects that a technique is being used on them, they turn off. Um, I actually had the experience of working with someone who managed to um, alienate every single person she needed to uh, to do her job, and I sat down with her one day and said, okay, look, I'm the guy who's supposed to know about influence, so let me tell you, here's about 25 people who you need to make good relationships with. Do you want to know who they are? She said, sure. So I made a list. I said, why don't you spend the next several weeks building your relationship? Two days later, I bumped into somebody who was on the list. And he said to me, I just had the strangest visit from, I'll call her Shirley. She came to my office, and I have no idea what she wanted. But we started talking, and I had the strangest feeling that I was being checked off a list of some kind. And I could hardly keep a straight face, but I thought, this is not going to work. I mean, it, it, instead of making the relationship, she was doing a task, and she was doing it to somebody. Um, it's like people who find out that everyone likes to have be called by their name, and every other word out of their mouth is calling you by your first name. And about the fourth or fifth time in a sentence, it's a turnoff. So... Um, you can't technique people by doing this. Um, you can you can um, say, "I'm interested in uh, what matters to you." Um, if you're willing to talk directly, you can even say, "I'm having trouble understanding what you care about." I know that if I understood it better, I could help you so that you could help me get my work done. Uh, if you're not uncomfortable doing that, that's pretty open and direct. Or you can listen. 
You can listen for the way the person talks, what they talk about, the recurring themes in their conversation. This works on people higher up. Um, If they're higher in the organization, they make talks. They write things. Um, They have metaphors that they use all the time. Some people talk in military metaphors, kind of hard-nosed. Some people talk in gardening metaphors. They like to grow and develop people. That tells you the kind of things that are on their mind. You can also very often think about what's the position that they're in, what's their situation. Um, you, You usually can figure out what somebody above you worries about. What do they wake up in the middle of the night worrying about in terms of the organization? Is it overseas competition? Is it where they're going to get the uh, next talented people? Right now, uh, with what's happening around immigration, we know that people in technology are very worried about where they're going to get um, enough people with technology training. Does it have to do with foreign exchange? And what rates are going to do to them? Uh, Does it have to do with um, new competition? Uh, Does it have to do with how technology is going to replace some of the uh, technology they're now using, and so on and so on? So you can do diagnosis that isn't even personal. It's about situation that's going to tell you uh, with probability what they're likely to care about. And then you have to be careful that you don't stereotype um, but you can test a little bit. Okay. You also can tell so, a lot by what department, what division they work in. Yeah. Yeah. Marketing people have a certain set of concerns. Um, engineering people have another. I tease my students. I say, obviously, not all engineers are exactly alike. But I know if you went to engineering school, you care about the fourth number after the decimal point. You can't not because that's how you were trained. I was an English major. I do know there's a number after the decimal point, but that's not what I learned to focus on, and so on. So, right, so Alan, let me of, ask you a question yeah. about this one. So I just Go today I was talking with a whole series of clients. One particular client was a bunch of people, series of conversations, that's going through a lot of change. And the number one question coming from everybody is, how do you motivate? How do you motivate? How do you motivate? How do you motivate? Mm. And I said to people, I did this with one group on the phone. I said, so what motivates you? What do you get excited about? What do you get passionate about? And in a couple of lines, people can tell you exactly what they get passionate about. One person said, I get excited about being able to create a climate where other people are growing. And somebody else said, I get excited about giving me a problem that nobody has solved and I can go figure out how to solve it myself. Is that what you mean by currency? I sure do, Wanda, and in fact, that was going to be my last point. There's always asking, what is it you care about? What, you, what turns you on? Um, what matters to you the most? And in fact, um, because there are so many different currencies, Bradford and I developed, the, we sat down one day and made a list of all the ones we hear in organizations. And we said, well, that's too many for anybody to remember. So we, we roughly grouped them into five categories. And these are, this is just a way to get started. Um, the five categories are inspirational currencies. You just named a couple. You know, I want to make a difference in the world. I want to do things that are extraordinary. I want to transform people's lives. So that's one set of currencies that 
turns a lot of people on. There are task-related currencies. I want to get stuff out the door. I want to do work that's really good. I want to get the right resources and so on. And then there are people who work for positional currencies. They want to be in a position to advance. They want to be recognized. Um, they want to get ahead. Then there are people who care about relationship currencies. They want to be liked and accepted and, uh, and known by others. And then uh, the last category is kind of a catch-all uh, category. There were personal currencies, and one of the most important of those is uh, self-concept. They want to be seen as the kind of person they believe they are. Um, everybody has a definition of what kind of person I am. I'm careful, and I'm meticulous, and I get things done well, and so on, whatever it is. And then there can be many idiosyncratic ones. So I think it's great to ask people, uh, what do you care about? That Most people are very happy to tell you. And then the people who want to play it close to the vest, they're also telling you something about their currency. They want to feel they're in control, and they have something on you. Okay, that's a very important currency to them. And how do you work okay. with that? Great. So now you've mentioned a couple of times about influencing up. You've mentioned about being able to know the currency of your manager, that you can listen to their metaphors, you can listen to the recurring themes, you can look at what's happening in the market and know what the, what issues might be affecting them. But does this notion of exchange work upwards as well as it does with peers and downwards? Sure. So let me start with saying that almost everybody – has way more potential influence over their boss or their boss's boss or higher-ups than they think they do. Um, they get caught up with, I don't get enough support from my boss, my boss is too critical, uh, my boss isn't helping me develop, whatever it is. They, everybody has, most people have some kind of complaint. But think about what almost everybody has that their boss needs. They know things that the boss doesn't hear because... People make assumptions about bosses, and they hold back things they think the bosses don't want to hear. Um, so they don't tell them. And so anybody in a position of authority um, is information-deprived coming up from below. Um, everybody has things they can deliver to their boss, which includes getting your work done on time, getting it done in a style that the boss cares about, whether it's rich in detail, whether it's conclusions first, whether it's backing things up with a lot of detail or um, not loading that onto the boss unless they ask for it. Um, people often know things about what's happening in other parts of the organization. Most people have some kind of special knowledge that they were hired for, that the boss doesn't know. I mean, in the old days, there was the belief that the boss is more expert at everything. We know that's totally impossible now. Um, and, and organizations are built to bring in people with expertise that no one person can have. So you've got your particular expertise, and you have whatever you've been learning as you go. You've got your time and your willingness to put it in. You've got your willingness to show up um, at, in crises, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. Those are all valuable things you have to give to your boss. And then you've got whatever your boss idiosyncratically likes. I can tell you one of the best things I ever did for a boss I worked for, and this wasn't to get ahead, 
Um, he was uh, not a native English speaker. When he was stressed, English left him. He speak it perfectly well, but under stress, he just didn't do so well, and he couldn't write very well. And I saw that it took him forever to get a memo out when we finished a meeting. And as I said earlier, I was an English major, and words come easily to me. So one day I said to him, Jan, would you like me to write that up, this memo? He said, would you? I said, sure. And 20 minutes later, I walked back upstairs and handed it to him. It would have taken him two weeks. And so after that, he would often ask me to do it. I would happily do it, and since it would take me just minutes, it was no big deal to me. That saved what could have been a very bad relationship, because we often disagreed about a bunch of other things. So there it was. I wasn't trying for anything. I had something to offer him. He happily accepted it. And when we went at it about other issues, we had a good relationship, even though we disagreed on things. So, yes, everybody has something to give their boss. And if you pay attention, you'll find out what it or they are, because it's often more than one thing. And you can get somewhere. So okay. I'll tell you one quick example. We okay. knew a guy who went to work at an organization, and his boss was a uh, senior VP, and she ended up a member of a task force that he was asked to run. Her nickname in the organization was Dr. Doom. She was a tough person, very, very difficult to deal with. Everybody ran the other way, tried to avoid her, and he was told that, of course, by everybody. And he thought, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? But he took his assignment seriously. He worked long hours. Turned out she worked long hours. So she was around late when he was around late. So they talked. Um, she didn't have a very good sense of humor, but she tried. So he tried hard to get it. And over time, she won his res- uh, he won her respect. And she began to talk more openly with him, gave him more responsibility. And after a while, she was not as tough on him as she was on everybody else. She began to trust him. And so everybody else still called her Dr. Doom, and she actually liked having him work for her. And he became begrudgingly glad that he did. There's an example of a real turnaround that just came out of paying attention to what she cared about. Hard work, integrity, and valuing her as a person. And respecting her style as her style. And you underpinning again the importance of trust, building enough trust in the relationship. doesn't have to be huge amounts, but enough so that people see it's coming from a good place. So, Ellen, let's talk about Mm. the process of the exchange. So, here I am. I figured out what either my boss or somebody else values, so their currency. I figured out what I have to give and that, that is a value to them. And I know what I want back from them. So how does the exchange happen? Do I just make a formal deal? Hey, I'll give you this if you'll give that. I mean, what's the exchange process look like? Okay, well, that's, uh, that's a wonderful question. In the best of all possible worlds, it's all implicit. You do it, it gets noticed, and you start getting things back. Um, but it may be that uh, it's something that you want sooner, it's tougher, you need it to finish a project. I mean, so obviously it's situational. 
Um, so let's assume that it's not something you can just do and it'll take care of itself over time. Although in a lot of things at work, that's, that does happen. So... Um, I, we, we take. We have to say what the thing is. Is it uh, you want more autonomy? Okay. Um, you, the boss is micromanaging. So, at some point, it might be when you're having a review. It might be after a project. It might be at a time when you uh, uh, particularly think the boss is slowing you down because he or she keeps asking for reports and wants a lot of detail. So you have a conversation, and you try to fit what you ask for to the boss's goals. That, by the way, that's a principle of mine. You can say anything to anybody if you tie it to what they care about. So you might say to the boss, I see how important it is to you that I get this project right or I do my job well. It's important to me also. But I also see that you're asking for a level of specificity on a whole bunch of things which suggests that um, you're not sure if I'm really going to deliver. Let's talk about those things because there's some of them which I'm really quite good at. And I could give you reports about those before you even ask because I want to free you up from concern about those so we could talk about the stuff that's much more complex where I'd really like to be able to jointly problem solve. No, I'll stop there. We could could go on. So the conversation I'm having is one where I try to address what I believe is the boss's concern in a way that doesn't belittle it, but tries to meet it and go beyond so I can get what I need and the boss gets what he or she needs. Okay. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I have a boss who only wants to see me when things are going wrong, and I'd like a little more guidance. So I put it the other way around. Boss, um, I see how important it is to you not to be bugged by a million details. And, man, I don't want to do that. Could I get five minutes every other week to just zip by you a couple things to make sure I'm getting things the way we need them done? Okay. I mean, you, you adjust your ask to fit the other person's desires. Okay. Okay. So, and I get the way you use the language to be respectful of the other person's needs and their currency, to keep using that word. So, right. acknowledging. Part of the currency is yeah. their style as well as okay. what they want. Okay. And, um, by the way, that's a, that's a core principle of, uh, of the model that we developed, which is, You treat every single person you deal with as a potential partner or potential ally. And I say potential because it could turn out that there's somebody that you'll never be able to gain any trust with, um, and and, uh, it just won't work, that there's no common currency and no common trust. But the reason I say potential partner is very often if we don't succeed in the beginning, we start to write the other person off. And you never have to say out loud, I think you're kind of a jerk because you won't do what I want. But the minute you start feeling it or thinking it, you might as well have a big red neon light on your forehead flashing saying, I think you're defective. And people sense that. And once they sense it, 
There's no way you could influence them. Right. <laughs> Nobody wants to be thought of in that negative way. So I'm not a uh, Pollyannish person, uh, you know, thinks everybody's wonderful. I just try to check myself before I write somebody off and say, if it's not working, I must not be understanding them well enough to connect. And I need to try some other methods. Okay. I need to make some other assumptions. I need to try some alternate hypotheses about what might be going on with them and what they might care about that gets them not to be responding to what I'm doing. And by the way, that's always a good question. Is yeah. there anything I'm doing that's keeping you from responding to my request? Yeah. Which might get you a good uh, piece of information. Right. Or at right. least stops the attack. All right. Okay, so let me see if we're going to take a break here again. Let me see if I can summarize all of this one. Again, the notion is exchange. I need to understand the currency of what it is that you value. That's including both your style as well as the outputs and opportunities and so forth that you would like to have. We've talked about five different kinds of currencies. I figure out a way in which I can offer that to you. In an ideal world, I just offer it. And then I hope that you will exchange and return so it becomes an implicit one. I can ask lots of different questions in order to understand what your currencies are, and I can also just observe and listen to you and figure out what your currencies are. On occasion, that exchange process needs to be much more explicit, and then I need to start with some high levels of respect for the individual to recognize what it is they value and then what it is that I want in exchange for something they value. Okay, and as we've said, it works as well with a boss as it works with anything in the organ, anybody in the organization, boss and boss's boss for that matter. The secret, though, is understanding the currency to start with. And I guess we should also say, Alan, the second currency, second thing is to make sure the relationship is strong enough so that what you're seen to be doing is seen in the best light, not in the doing it to me light. So we're going to take a break with. With me today is Alan Cohen. Um, Alan is Distinguished Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. He's the author of several books. The one we're talking about is Influence Without Authority. When I come back, I want to talk about influencing when it's all virtual. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. All right, welcome back. With me today is Alan Cohen. Alan is a distinguished professor at Babson College in global leadership and author of several books. The one we've been talking about is Influence Without Authority. The notion is influencing without telling people what to do is an exchange. I have to figure out what the currency is that matters for you. I have to figure out how to offer some of that to you or give that some of you and hope that something I want comes back to me. That can be implicit or it can be an explicit request. All right, Alan, I want to talk about virtual because so much of what we do is virtual. And I'm presuming that this notion of exchange works as well virtually as it does when I see somebody face to face. But I'm also presuming it's a little more complicated because I can't, I don't have as much information about what currency really matters. Am I right about that? Yeah, it's a little more complicated. Um, it's getting better. Um, one of the things that um, uh, I've been finding out as I'm talking to people who have to do this uh, for a living is that um, bandwidth is improving. Um, you can do much more with video than you could just a few years ago, uh, um, at least if the other end has uh, got decent, uh, decent speed and uh, quality. Um, you can also use chat, so it's almost like talking back and forth instantly. Um, I started my career, I lived in India. It used to take six weeks for a letter to go back and forth. Now you can have instant chat, so that's better. Um, and you can, you can see in a meeting, you can see everybody at once, so people can't quite as easily drop off and check their emails and uh, fiddle on their laptops and so on. Um, but there are some things that uh, people are doing that makes it... Uh, makes it better. Um, one of the things is, if you are working virtually, you have to do a lot of things that um, don't happen automatically. When people are co-located, they can have natural uh, bumping into each other <laughs> over uh, getting coffee around the office, um, having drinks after work, lunch, wherever it is. Although I tell people, I always ask people when I do a talk, how many of you eat lunch? Most do. And how many of you uh, just eat it at your desk? A lot do. How many of you actually ever eat with anybody you don't already know and eat with every other day? A lot don't. And I say you're wasting opportunities. Sit down with somebody you don't know and get to know. That's a potential new ally or partner. So you can't do that so easily uh, when you're at a distance. So you need to do things. If you're a manager and you're working with people at a distance, you got to talk to them in between meetings. One of the best people I know at this, um, before every meeting that's done virtually, talks to every individual, asks, how are you doing? What's on your mind? How are things going? How can I help you? What are you, what are you having trouble achieving? What could I help with? Not... Tell me every single thing that you've done and, um, you know, report to me, but how can I be of help? Um, where are your aspirations? Where are you headed? Um, what can we do to get you there? So there's a lot of in-between, um, I'll call it soft stuff. Um, it's trust building. It's caring. It's making the person know they're not going to disappear. 
Um, sometimes it's cross-cultural because people in other parts of the world sometimes aren't as forthcoming without a lot of encouragement. They still carry ideas about uh, speaking to superiors, uh, and they don't do that so freely. So uh, the time that's in between meetings is used that way. After meetings, they get a call saying, did you get a chance to say everything you wanted to say? I noticed you were hesitating, or we didn't hear from you on that issue. Um, did you want to add something? So there's a lot of that kind of work. Also, when there's a chance to be face-to-face, uh, it takes a lot of good planning. Um, we were thinking recently about the thousands of meetings we've been to where people are brought together and end up sitting listening to reports from above for hours on end. And uh, because the people from the center often feel there's so much we've got to tell. And, and then they sometimes don't trust the people who've come from, uh, from far away. Well, what if they start whining? What if they try to push back on the policy decisions we've made? What if they don't like the strategy? What if they don't like the way we've allocated the budget? And there's a whole lot of what ifs. I just facilitated one recently where there were really smart people, and yet it was, it was arm wrestling to get uh, there to be small group discussions where people had a chance to say what was on their minds. Um, so if you're going to manage well at a distance, you've got to allow lots of face-to-face time. And surprisingly, it doesn't happen. You've got to realize that not every single minute has to be structured in formal meeting time, but it does take structure. You have to allow lots of questions and answers. You have to allow a lot of informal time among the members because they have to build trust among themselves. Um, and then... You need to get to know everybody so you can do some of the same understanding what matters to them and allow them to build the currencies. Um, There's uh, uh, Mark Murphy, who does a lot of uh, writing on virtual meetings, talks about uh, asking the question, uh, where is it you'd like to be? Um, What things would you like to get better at this next month? So it's a question about what you care about, not what I can do to you. And um, you're, you constantly got to be emphasizing to the remote person that they're important. Otherwise, they can feel uh, kind of distant and ignored. And it's easy to feel that. It's also easy to be out of sight, out of mind for the people who are at wherever the main site is. So, yep, it all works, but it doesn't work so automatically. And it takes conscious effort to um, really know the people and have them feel like they know you, whoever the influencer is, and will uh, have their say, and that it's a two-way or a multi-way street. So, Alan, this strikes me that at the end of the day, the more I can, the stronger I can make the relationship, meaning the more you know I care about you, the more I know about you as a person, um, the more informal time we spend together just sharing common activities or perspectives or nothing structured, just talking and dialogue, the easier all this influence is. Yep. So, you know... I was talking with a friend the other day. All all of us, or at least people I talk to, all have friends who we don't even talk to for 10 years, and we pick up in mid-sentence the next time we see them. 
That's great, because trust was built at some former time. But with a lot of people, it doesn't work that way. You need uh, constant touches to keep it going. And with employees, there's often always the question, you know, do I still matter? And will I still be getting where I'd like to go? And you know that um, the old uh, idea that you work for one company forever, now we know with younger people, uh, do you even work for them for two years? Um, and part of so that that old exchange, you know, I work for you and I have lifetime employment, that's long gone. But people will stay if they feel like they're going somewhere and they're learning something and that somebody is invested in their learning and their growth and that what the company does matters. And it's possible to do that. It just takes serious attention. And um, leaders, managers can do that. You just can't take it for granted anymore. Okay. And obviously, we can do that virtually as easily as we can do it face-to-face if we take the well, time to pay attention to it. Well, you can do it virtually. I, wouldn't, I don't know about as easily because it now has to be more conscious. Yeah. More consciously. We still can do it, yeah. but we have to be more conscious about it and maybe invest a bit more time. Okay. So, right. Alan, let me see if I can summarize all of this one in our last minute before we wrap up. Ah. And that is, it's about exchange. It's the glue that makes corporations and life in general work. We all do it every day, but we just don't call it that. And the notion is, I have something that I offer to you and give to you. And in exchange, you have something that you offer me that I want. The secret to making this work is understanding the currency for you. And having you, hopefully, understand the currency for me. This can be implicit. We might talk about it. We might say it openly. Or it might be just purely implicit where we just do it without ever even talking about it. It's possible to know what somebody's currency is. I just have to listen, tune in. There are several different kinds. I can even ask about it if I need to. And then it's a matter of um, making sure that relationship is strong enough so that this is done not to somebody, but feels genuine, authentic, and caring from a caring space. How's that in 30 seconds? That's fabulous. Uh, You've just proved why I like you so much and why you can influence me because you do really listen. And it's a pleasure to talk with someone who gets it. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. The book, again, one of my favorites, Influence Without Authority, and it's about to be released in its third edition. Next week, we're going to be listening to Jennifer Allen and about her experiences in the corporate life and particularly around managing diversity. So tune in then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.